patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicate to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everyone, and welcome to episode 76 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylowski. Thank you all so much for joining me in this week's episode. Make sure to subscribe to our email list down in the link in the show notes below, and also consider joining to become a Patreon member, also via the link down in the show notes as well. Now, I've never done an interview about COVID-19, about pandemic response, so this week will be a landmark episode for Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm really excited to explore this topic almost two years after the first COVID lockdown started in March 2020, and I believe when we drift away a bit more from the fog of war, we're able to perhaps see things more clearly, and that is why I've decided to choose this time around to take a look at the U.S. pandemic response, not just in COVID, but in history as well. And we will be exploring some other topics of interest. Please note also that this episode was recorded in December of 2021, so about a month before this episode's release date. So some facts may have changed, but I just wanted to put that out there for all of you. Now I'd like to introduce our special guest this week. Dr. Christine Blackburn is an assistant professor of security studies in the College of Criminal Justice at Sam Houston State University. In this role, she conducts research on pandemic preparedness and response, the securitization of health, and other health security challenges. Prior to her appointment at SHSU, she served as an assistant research scientist and deputy director of the Pandemic and Biosecurity Policy Program with the Scowcroft Institute for International Affairs in the Bush School of Government Public Service and an adjunct faculty member in the Department of Health Promotion and Community Health Sciences in the School for Public Health at Texas A&M University. Before coming to A&M, she worked as a postdoctoral researcher in the Field Disease Investigation Unit in the College of Veterinary Medicine at Washington State University. Dr. Blackburn received her PhD in 2015 from Washington State University as part of the Individual Interdisciplinary Doctoral Program, a degree program that requires three major fields of study. Dr. Blackburn's doctoral fields were political science, communication, and veterinary clinical sciences. All right, and now I am pleased to welcome Dr. Christine Blackburn to Friends and Fellow Citizens. Christy, thank you so much for joining our program today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we've got a whole slew of topics. We won't go too much into depth for each and every single one of them because otherwise there'll be some kind of 24-hour live stream that you didn't sign up for. So we will we will do our best. I think the theme for today's conversation is looking more into the civility side, or should I say lack of civility side, for some of these issues that have been affecting us clearly in our day-to-day lives and in our interactions with other people. And, but before we get to that, Christy, I'd like to start by asking you how you got 
involved you know, or how you got interested in your field of study? Because clearly you must have had some kind of series of aha moments uh, before you walked into this profession here. And in the last two years, you clearly have had such a big platform and such a great emphasis on the areas that you are researching right now. Yeah, I did. It was kind of an interesting path. So I originally, like, I was one of those weird kids that knew I wanted to, like, pretty much what I wanted to do from fourth grade. I was like, I'm going to go work in the White House. I'm going to work in in politics. So that changed a little bit. But, you know, I started with an interest in nuclear weapons and nuclear security. And then that kind of, like, migrated to bioterrorism. Um And then my focus on pandemics actually came from a very specific comment that was made in a a class I was taking in grad school, where um, somebody said, you know, you could take smallpox and combine it with Ebola and make this new disease called blackpox and it could kill everyone. And I just remember thinking, like, I I don't know if that sounds right. And so then that kind of sent me on my path to do an interdisciplinary degree where I had, you know, um, not only the the policy side, but also the communication, crisis communication, and then the actual scientific side. So some microbiology, um, I was in veterinary clinical sciences. Um, And the more I got into that, the more I I kind of decided, you know, nature can create things that we can't even imagine. And, um, and so I wanted to figure out how we could prepare and respond better for pandemics. And, uh, I mean, it's interesting because at the time people were like, this isn't really something anyone's going to be interested in. That's what they would tell me. (laughs) And then, you know, fast forward to now, it's kind of like the big the big topic that we're all worried about. So some of it was luck and some of it was just following my interests, really. Wonderful. And as we noted earlier before our recording, I remember you uh, coming on to the some podcasts for our uh, Bush School. For the Bush School, obviously, you were uh, teaching there. You did research there. I was a student there, recently graduated over the past year and a half or so. And uh, I decided to reach out to you. And I, and I just want to thank you again so much for, for taking some time out of your busy schedule. Uh, now you're at Sam Houston State University, home of uh, Sam Houston and the home of the largest statue of a guy ever in the history of statues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but now I want to delve a little bit more into his historical side of things. And we'll just spend a several minutes looking at some of just a handful of the uh, responses that the U.S. has been engaged in. Chrissy, would you mind just giving us an overview of the Spanish flu, um, maybe some of the, the numbers, or and really just how the U.S. response became uh, so cited, really, during this whole COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah. So one, I mean, one is in the the way that we often describe it as the Spanish flu. I, I always call it the 1918 flu because the Spanish flu actually came from propaganda because Spain was one of the only places that didn't have um, censorship laws during the war. So they were the only place that was really allowed to report on the pandemic openly. And so that kind of gave it the misnomer like this is the Spanish flu, but it came most likely came from Kansas in the United States. So um I mean, that's one lesson, right, is the way that you label things can kind of like stay forever, whether those are accurate labels or not. Um, but there, the, I think the reason it's been cited so much is because there's a lot of really interesting overlaps that people might not um, might not be aware of. I mean, besides it being a brand new virus that we hadn't encountered before, so there was a, a huge susceptible population, um, There's a there was a lot of the same 
polarizing issues that we have currently, um, which I, I think is so interesting because there were anti-mask leagues. There were um, arguments and debates and protests about closing of, of schools and closing. Uh, I mean, obviously, there weren't like schools at the same level now that was a little more, uh, you know, people didn't attend as regularly. But, you know, there were debates about closing um, businesses. We actually saw these like very distinct um, uh, paths that different cities and different states took. So some were very strict with their um, and with their, you know, mask laws, with their anti-spitting. That was a big law. You couldn't you couldn't spit legally in public during the 1918 pandemic. Um, and their and their business closures and church closures and that sort of thing. So I think that's why it's been referenced a lot is because we see a lot of those overlaps and a lot of the interventions that were implemented in 1918 were fairly similar to what we in, we implemented um, in 2020. Um, and some people saw that as a lesson, right? Because places that implemented these procedures, like these masking and social distancing and um, that sort of thing early on and maintain them for longer, saw less infections and their economy actually rebounded more quickly following the 1918 pandemic compared to places that, where there was more tension over those things and they didn't stay in place as long or people fought putting them in place and so forth. So I think that's one of the reasons the 1918 pandemic has been referenced so frequently. I mean, all I can say is, is kind of from what I've read, but a lot of the accounts are, are absolutely horrifying, you know, like, just the amount of people who were sick and the inability to do anything for them. Like, I mean, they were stacking, you know, stacking bodies. At one point, I think Philadelphia said that their morgue was stacked to the ceiling, like literally stacked to the ceiling with, with bodies um, of people who had died from the flu. So, you know, all they could really do was have them, lay down and, and hope, you know, maybe give them morphine if they were in pain. But um, I think one of the things that I find so interesting is like, you know, we do have these medical advances, but in some ways, um, at the very beginning, when you have no knowledge, right, you're kind of in the same place, you're trying to figure out what's going on, how does it spread, who, who is most at risk? What does it do to your body when it infects you? And all those sorts of things that they were also trying to figure out. They just had less technology to be able to figure it out over time. So, um, yeah, there wasn't a lot that could be done for sure. Yes. Uh, I'm sure people at that time could have used a lot more Zoom calls. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it, this kind of takes me now fast forward. Now I know I'm skipping quite a bit of time here from 1918 into really the early 2000s. What seemed to be very, very minor, but basically like epidemics for us uh, would be like the swine flu in 2009 and Ebola. Um, what was the U.S. response like for those two? Um, and I know that those are two very different um, times, but um, what what was so different about the response, if if any, when it comes to you know things like shutting the border or restricting travel or things like that? Yeah, um, the 2009 flu. I feel like in a lot of ways, we, I, I guess, in the global health community, we kind of consider ourselves very lucky in that instance because um, it, that virus infected two. 2 billion people in six months. So it was highly, highly transmissible. Um, it just didn't end up being as severe as we were concerned that it was going to be. 
And so, you know, we re- we really got lucky with that one because overall we didn't contain it, right? It like spread everywhere. Um, but some of the things that were discussed during that, there was obviously some travel bans that were put in place here in Texas. There was a big debate about what to do at the U.S.-Mexico border because the virus emerged in Mexico. Um, and then the first death in the U.S. occurred in Texas. Um, and so, you know, the the whole thing was the discussion of wanting to close the border to prevent further spread. And then on the Texas side saying, well, there's so much commerce that comes across that border. We can't just close it. Right. So so we still had those debates. Um the U.S. didn't do nearly as much as, um, like, Mexico closed schools, closed businesses, um, canceled events, canceled sporting events, that sort of thing. Um, but the U.S. didn't do quite as much of that. I think the biggest thing that people probably remember from 2009 was the vaccine campaign. I don't know if you remember this as well, but um, they there a vaccine had to be created, but we already had the foundation, right? So you still had a six-month time frame. And the kind of rollout of the 2009 vaccine was was not as smooth, I would say, as the the COVID vaccine has been. Um, And there was a lot of vaccine hesitancy. So there was a lot of concern about messaging like we have now. Right. A lot of concern about messaging and convincing, especially pregnant women, that they needed to get this vaccine, because even though it wasn't that severe, it was it was severe for pregnant women. There was a concern. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the response was uh, obviously muted compared to what we have now. But at, at the beginning, when there was, when we were unsure how serious the, the virus was going to be, there was like some of the th- same things we talked about in, in COVID. And what HHS developed following that actually had a whole section for non-pharmaceutical community interventions, which most of which were implemented in COVID-19. Wow. I, I do remember vaguely 2009, I was in middle school at the time and it was a thing. Like I could see, I remember like some billboards talking about it, but I didn't re- definitely did not recall, you know, such, such that drastic change in lifestyle. Clearly what's interesting is how one time I was, I had the cold or something. Um, I was well enough to go to school and my mother told me to wear a mask. And I told her, I said, it's going to feel weird because no one really wears a mask. Well, not a whole lot of people do, at least in my opinion. It's just interesting as we're speaking right now, looking in hindsight, it just kind of blows your mind a little bit. <laughs> um, but- <laughs> yeah, they, ha- they had, um, I was in college. I think I was in my master's program at the time and the university just had like, go to this website and if you have, if you have the influenza virus and fill out this form and give it to your teacher so you can miss class, there was like no testing or anything like that. It was just like, fill out this form and then you don't have to go to class. So, <laughs> I remember, I remember uh, that. I, some students, I think, were tempted to fill in the, I can't do my homework uh, virus or the flu. <laughs> like, uh, I'm not going to show I mean, Honestly, though, there was like all of a sudden our university was a hot spot because there was like supposedly 2,000 cases or something because everyone was filling out these forms. But there was no like, there was no testing. But yeah, I mean, there's that. And then um, Ebola is a completely different story. And I think like a good learning experience because the, I mean, there, if you look at it from the communication side, right, Ebola was like this massive, everyone was afraid they were going to get a, Ebola, right? It was all over the papers, like Ebola has come to the United States and we're all going to get sick. But the reality is like 
the average American was never at risk of getting Ebola. It's a very different virus. You have to have, you know, direct, close contact with an infected person um, in order to get it. So, uh, so that one was interesting because I think the actions that were taken to respond to it by our public health officials, um, A&M was very involved in that, especially for the dog that was um, like one of the inf- uh, infected individuals had a dog. And so our veterinary school, the veterinary school um, was played a role, I believe, in in working with the dog during quarantine and stuff like that. Um, so, and everyone did like a, I thought a very kind of like by the book textbook response and did a, a good job there, but it was so, you know, it was so isolated and so contained and it was never really the large scale threat of um, the other pandemics. So now I want to get more into COVID now, you know, fast, only fast forward a few years really, uh, but going to 2020, you know, one of the things that I said earlier um, before our recording was that uh, part of the reason why I haven't done an interview about COVID is because we were kind of still in the, the fog of war, so to speak, to use that metaphor. And uh, Christy, I want to ask you about the lockdowns. And uh, obviously, you mentioned earlier about how during 1918, how there were these lockdowns and all that. What is your evaluation of the ability for the COVID lockdowns to do what it, it tended to do, which is to slow the spread of the virus. So if you take it from a strictly scientific perspective, right, if you implement a lockdown where like people are really restricted in their movement, right? Like a, like a formal quarantine type situation. Um, and you maintain that for, it has to be longer than two weeks, like for a, for a, an extended period of time, that will essentially stop the spread of the virus, right? Because if you're looking at it from a scientific perspective, a virus needs a susceptible host. So if you eliminate its chances of finding a susceptible host, it can't, it can't continue. Um, Now, you know, that is just the science, like how virus biology works, scientific perspective of lockdowns. That doesn't take into account any of the educational or economic or mental health or any of those impacts. That's just, so, so from a disease containment perspective, if you restrict pretty much all movement and, and maintain that until there's, you know, no new reported cases, then the pandemic would have essentially been over. I mean, cases could have always popped up, but it would have it would have been a different um, uh, different situation. Now, what we did, you know, and and I know there's a lot of work on weighing the cost and benefits of of doing the lockdowns, um, and there are there were some very severe impacts on in certain areas of not just the economy, but for individuals and and their health and mental health and those sorts of things. Um, and education was a big one, food security, all of those sorts of things. But we did sort of, um, in some ways, the, wor- the worst option that we could have done because we implemented a lockdown, but then didn't actually implement a lockdown. So we, we maybe slowed the spread a little bit, but we were, we were never giving ourselves a chance to stop the pandemic or contain the pandemic, but we were still getting all of the negative impacts. So if you look at it from how effective did the U.S. do a lockdown, I would say very ineffectively. 
And that had partially to do with um, there was no uniformity to it and all that sort of um, elements of it as well. What's so startling is that China did not tell us about when the virus came about in Wuhan in December 2019. We didn't learn about it until perhaps January 2020. If we had started those lockdowns three months before March 2020, so in this sense, in the same month as when the virus was detected, how much of a difference do you think that would have made in stopping the spread of the coronavirus throughout the United States? No, I mean, I think if you if we did the lockdown when you see your first case, then obviously, because especially with COVID, we didn't know this at the time, but it, it was spread by asymptomatic individuals. And usually when you find a disease, it's already it's already out there. It's already very widespread, which is why, you know, they discovered the current variant, Omicron, and then now it's in every country, right? But that's because they're looking for it now. It was It was already there. Um, so, you know, discovering the first case, you have to assume that it's already pretty widespread at that point. So obviously having that three month, you know, time period where we let it continue to spread um, really decreased our chances of being able to to contain it. Um, uh, so I guess you, my answer is like, yes, it, it would have made a difference. But again, it only would have made a difference if there there was a uniform like lockdown um in place right gotcha understood i i just want to get that sense because you know there's been so much debate as you as you pointed out there's all these other different factors that come into play i want to also admit that and it sounds crazy because i mean everyone knows this but i'm not an epidemiologist and the reason why i say that is it's so obvious i know right big news i reveal i reveal that i'm not an epidemiologist yeah 70 plus episodes in this podcast and i finally tell people the, the, the reality um but the reason why i bring this up christy to you is because i feel like so many stages throughout this pandemic people kind of pretend that they know what a, you know what viruses do they kind of they kind of pretend that they're a bunch of christy blackbirds essentially and that's one of the things that really irritates me is because i think it's important for us to acknowledge that we're not experts in a particular field and to at least allow the scientific debate to occur amongst people who've had prior experience so my question to you is how important is it for public health professionals virologists and others to have concrete, constructive dialogue about the scientific data and the necessary precautions that should be recommended to government officials and to the general public? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that is, is a good point. So I think one of the interesting things about COVID that I, I think on some level, even I wasn't prepared for is like in, in academia and in science, we're always debating, you know, so it, it, something published is not necessarily settled. It's why we always use this very qualifying language. Like this might be the what it happens. This is what we think is likely, those sorts of things. Um, and we have these about a lot of things. We have these massive scientific debates, which I think is absolutely vital to putting out the best science. Um, but it usually occurs in like 
a random conference where no one from the public is paying attention. And then when something is made public, it's after this has been going on for months or years or whatever. Um, and what ended up happening and why I think the messaging got, well, one of the reasons that the messaging got so difficult is that debate was, was happening in public, right? So all of these arguments and these competing papers and these competing hypotheses were being put forward and then reported in, in the news as if they were fact, which made it, made it look like scientists didn't know what they were talking about, but this is all part of the normal process. Um, and, th and that's that, I mean, that doesn't address people who, who aren't experts in the field kind of coming into the field because that definitely did happen, right? If you have an opportunity, there are people who are going to, to take it, but that made, that made the debate more difficult because those individuals weren't experts, but they might still have, you know, a, a PhD behind their name in something else. And so a lot of times when their work was reported in, say, like the, the local newspaper or a national newspaper, it was reported as like Dr. So-and-so says this without like any understanding that you know, someone who spent their whole life studying coronaviruses is going to be more of an expert than somebody who has a PhD in English. Or, I mean, that's just an example. But do you, so I do think that that like had a very detrimental effect, effect on, on what the public was hearing and their trust in, in, in the community, the, the public health community, knowing what they were talking about. I think that's a great point, Chrissy, that you brought up about the comp side of things. And I want to get to that now, which is I mean, one of the big challenges I'm seeing is that it seemed like the line between a public health advisor or someone who is tasked to advise a government official and the government official seemed like they were kind of doing switcheroos. And I'm just saying like the perception. I'm not saying they're literally doing that. But that really has been one of the biggest problems I'm seeing is that there's politicians who are doing things and people think that they're public health experts. And then there's the other side where there might be someone in public health who's giving advice, but he or she is not a government official, cannot make policy. What, what do you make of the, these kinds of challenges of being able to divide responsibility between someone who makes policy and someone who makes public health recommendations? Yeah, I mean, I think if you think if you think about how our our government is right behind every, you know, say secretary of health, there is an entire departments made up of people who are experts and their job is to provide that person with the best information possible. I mean, we have um, amazingly smart, talented people um, working in not only public health, but all different areas of our government. So I think one of the problems, um, because it, I don't think it's that, and I guess this is just my personal opinion. I don't think it's that abnormal to not have the expert be the spokesperson. What I do think is abnormal is for the spokesperson to contradict the expert, right? So usually it's kind of like an information flow uh, like up the ladder. So you're getting that expertise and it's coming out in a coherent, like one message. Um, but if you don't have that, or you have multiple spokesperson people or multiple voices competing or um, 
you know, the the non-experts contradicting the experts. I think that's where it got it got difficult for for people to know what, who they needed to be paying attention to. Right. And do you think this also applies to when politicians say that they want COVID rules or they implement restrictions, but then they do the opposite? Like we've seen uh, government officials attend parties or other social events without no social distancing or masking. Um, what kind of effect does that have on messaging and really just on the ability to execute public policy, generally speaking? I mean, I will, I'll preface this with my own disclosure. I'm not an expert in public perception, but, you know, if you think about it, the, the, the pandemic had such a massive impact on people's lives, even if it wasn't economic, but, but for a lot of people, they lost loved ones. They fell behind in school. They, you know, lost jobs and now, or they now have to get food from a food bank. And so, if you are listening to a public official who tells you that these sacrifices are necessary and then you see them not making the sacrifices they're asking of you, I, I think that ha- is really, I mean, it's going to have a big impact on, on how, not only how you feel about that official, but it's probably going to make you question whether you actually need to be doing all these things that they're telling you that you need to be doing. So I think it, it, negatively impacts people's willingness to kind of like follow the the rules there or the regulations that have been put in place. Right. And when you, as someone who studies pandemics and all that, I'm, I've, I just want to say out there that it's, it's also very startling when people who work on public health or are scientists and all that, I, I really, I absolutely condemn the vilification of these people because I, I know that there's debate, you know, there's no one, no one's out, no one should be going out there saying I am the the main person, I know everything. But then it seems like whenever there's, there's some kind of inconvenience or some, or some kind of policy that maybe someone from the public health sector or wherever might, might not necessarily want to execute. I mean, none of this is ideal and yet they get vilified. What have been your kind of personal experiences, whether it's yourself or any colleagues, you don't have to name any names, but what have been kind of some of the experiences that you've had to go through as someone who's just trying to tell people about the realities of COVID and just some of the ways that we can do to mitigate the spread? I mean, on a personal level, I I did a lot of um, Facebook lives for the Bush school while during the pandemic. And I got a, a lot of positive feedback, but I also got a lot of people who were, um, I mean, okay, not a lot. There were fewer, many fewer people um, with negative comments and positive comments, but I'd get all sorts of like really kind of mean comments, um, derogatory comments, sexist comments. Um, and, you know, I, I am not the only person by any means. I mean, I, there was a lot of reporting on how attacked and harassed women in particular in public health were. So I know it really impacted the profession and a lot of people resigned, which is it is going to have long term impacts on our ability to do good public health. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it is kind of. A little bit overwhelming when you are 
just trying to provide the best information that you have and your intention is to help people make good decisions or make the best decision for them or their family um, to, to be like a, attacked for, for doing that, for trying to provide a public service. Um, it's, it's a little bit disorienting, but, uh, and I know it was a very widespread problem. I mean, I know Dr. Fauci was getting like death threats at his home and had to have a security detail, um, and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, it was really, it's really unfortunate outcome. It really just emphasizes the importance of having civility, which is obviously a big part of our conversation and about our podcast, something that we're trying to do every single week, but it's seeing a lot of all civilification between the two extreme sides, whether it's on mass mandates, whether it's on vaccines or and what uh, restrictions, you know, you have on the one hand, you have people who I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to admit some people when they walk into a store, they kind of they forget to put a mask on. I've seen that happen. I've done it before. Um, it it seems like there are people who argue that it's easy to put it on, but I would say on the the same logic, it's also easy to forget to to put it on. And yet, there are times when myself and others have been uh, been yelled at in public because I forgot to put a mask on. And I don't, and I just say, oh, I got to put put it on. But then there's still a shouting, and it's. And then, and then there's the other side, right? When when people are just completely defying a, a requirement, saying, "Well, you have to abide by the rules." And yet, there's a lot of people who it seems like seems like COVID has revealed the hypocrisy of a lot of people and really the the animalistic side of of human nature. I just wanted to ask if you want to comment on really just just really the nature of what you're seeing and and how it really affects the way that. That that we maybe we interact in the in the in the near future and the long future. Yeah, um, I mean, this is something that I I personally am you know worry about and am concerned about in terms of the the civility element outside of just my work on pandemics and and pandemic response because I think that you know there there seems to be an increase in dehumanization, right? Like in viewing somebody who's different than you as your enemy. And I think for me in public health and just in my personal life, this is really disheartening because I went into public health because I wanted to protect people. (laughs) You know, this might seem like the, the idealistic little kid version, but I wanted to protect people from disease, all people, whether they were like me or not like me, whether they believed different things than I did. And so I, I very firmly believe that we are all in this together and that, you know, we don't have to agree on everything, but we should respect each other and keep in mind the broader goal, right? Like the overall good of the society. And so when I see what's kind of been occurring for a lot of years, but really got pushed to the forefront during the pandemic, where someone who thinks differently than you is your enemy, um, or someone who's on the different side of the mask debate, right, is your enemy. Um, and, And the language used to talk about people on the other side of whatever topic you're discussing in a dehumanizing manner, um, it's something that I, I, I am really um, concerned about. 
I have no doubt that you and I, having been to the Bush School, having attended Bush School, we all we understand this this public service aspect and kind of how big of a of a field it is. It's not all about you know you doing whatever you want to do. It's doing that doing that extra hard work, you know, to be able to to make that positive change. I'll, I'm going to shift now towards vaccines. Now, uh, one question I had, which is about vaccine innovation and technology, because that seems is I mean, as as long as this pandemic has gone, you know, it's it's pretty remarkable that we were able to get vaccines the year that we we started the lockdowns and all that. Uh, what can you tell us about how fast or how how big of a deal the COVID vaccine is in terms of the innovation side of things and the distribution as well? It's remarkable. It's a, it's an a incredible uh, scientific and logistical em- accomplishment, right? I um, the mRNA platform has been around for for decades, so y- you know it wasn't invented from scratch. But the ability to create a new vaccine um, in that amount of time—I mean, I think prior to that, the fastest vaccine it was like four years, right? So this is this is a huge huge um, accomplishment. And part of that was that all of the best minds in vaccine development and microbiology and pharmacology, they all turned their attention to this one problem. Um, and then it got support and funding from the federal government and um, companies and private sector turned to it as well. So, I, I mean, it, it is a really incredible accomplishment. And the, the rollout was, I think, um, almost equally impressive. It had a little bit of bumps at the beginning, but if you think about what was being accomplished and the ability to mass produce uh, a vaccine and get it out to as many people as possible, um, it was it was pretty. I think it was pretty amazing. I'm so glad to hear that because I feel that I feel the same way too. And I think there's there's people like the the head of Operation Warp Speed, General Gus Perna. I think is one of those guys who just never gets any credit for anything. He he was part of the operational side of things, something that has been lingering around for so long. And it's just it seems like it's 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 part of individual choice, but also there is this detriment to the greater good thing, which is vaccine hesitancy. Why is it that vaccine hesitancy becomes such such a, b- a big problem? Does it have any kind of historical precedent with um, a Supreme Court case, Jacobson v. Massachusetts, which was which is a very much cited case about uh, the ability for government to implement vaccines? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things is people tend to think the vaccine hesitancy movement is, is new, and it's not. It's literally been around since the very first vaccine in the 1700s. When the very first vaccine was invented, the very first, um, I, I don't know what they were called, like they were like the anti-vaccine league or something like that. Um, and when vaccine hesitancy originally began centuries ago, it was re- a religious movement. It was that people thought vaccines were going against God's will because God had intended to spread the disease. And so we shouldn't have vaccines to to stop it. And over time, obviously there have been, there's now like different um, reasons that vaccine people are vaccine hesitant. Um, Some of them are kind of like the civil liberties debate, which Jacobson v. Massachusetts addressed, you know, this idea that, um, that I should be able to choose if I want a vaccine or not the case law, constitutional law on that, starting with Jacobson, but going through, you know, decades of court cases is, 
is pretty clear that that um, the collective public health is placed above individual uh, liberties in this sense. So the government can uh, require you to get vaccinated or can at least in that case, it was a fine, right? They're fining someone for not getting vaccinated so they can put those mandates in place. Um, but I think with COVID, we see so many different elements of the vaccine hesitancy movement. So you see people who are concerned, who might normally get vaccines, who are concerned that the platform is too new, you know, because it it's a brand new way that we've administered vaccines, but mRNA technology isn't new, but that's kind of a hard, that's kind of a hard message to convey, right? Like it's a new vaccine technology, but it's not a new technology. Um, so there's people that are hesitant about that. There's people that are hesitant to get young children vaccinated, even though they might give their children all the other vaccines, because there's been all this messaging that it's not severe in children. So they view it as like, well, why do I need to get my child vaccinated if it's if it's not severe? That doesn't seem like something I should do. So there's um, there's that element. And then there's also been a lot of discussion about um, vaccine hesitancy in the black community. and a lot of times I think when people are talking about vaccine hesitancy in the black community, they forget that there is this like extensive, horrific history of medical and research abuse um, um, against members of the black community. And we often like distill it down to the Tuskegee experiments. But I mean, this is from prior to those experiments up to the present day, these, these things continue. So when you think about um, vaccine hesitancy there, you know, th there's there's a lot of historical um, uh, fear and justified fear, you know, that comes with with accepting, um, you know, medical interventions or technology or, or that sort of thing. So there's I think COVID is unique because it has so many different components of vaccine hesitancy, because then you still have the traditional like. Um, components, people concerned about whether vaccines contain toxic ingredients or they're not um, uh, like organic or whatever. You know, you have though you still have those elements um, in the anti-vaccine movement, the current anti-vaccine or vaccine hesitant movement as well. So it's 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 a much more it's actually much more complicated, I think, than it's been in in the past. I really appreciate you sharing that historical precedent and putting the vaccine hesitancy into context within the course of American history. This is kind of a, more of a funner question, but what has been the kind of the craziest theory or justification against a, a vaccine that you've ever heard uh, or something that maybe you've seen online or... <laughs> Okay, I was trying to think. I actually, I actually was given the task at one point of searching out all like um, conspiracy theories <laughs> about about. I think it was about vaccines on the internet. It was it was quite an adventure to go to go down because there's a lot. But I mean, I think some of the most interesting ones are like with COVID. I think you know that it's actually Bill Gates is like implanting a chip in you and you're going to, they're going to control you um, or he's going to control you. I wasn't really sure what, where, where that one was, uh, what that one was specifically, but I mean, there's all sorts of, there've been like, um, like conspiracies that vaccines are actually like 
um, like the disease itself. Like they're trying to to kill people with the injections rather than give them a vaccine. Um, Yeah. And I mean, there are some conspiracy theories that have grown out of, I would say, legitimate concerns, right? So there's vaccine hesitancy in some parts of the world um, because we were drawing blood to find Osama bin Laden and hiding it under the guise of a vaccine program, you know? So there, there are, you know, and that, that led to, to conspiracy theories that grew out of that. So, you know, there's a lot, there's, there is, um, a lot, but conspiracy theories typically seem to revolve around somebody wanting to take control of somebody else. It seems like it with, with diseases in general, actually, it's always like a theory that the disease was created by someone to then do something, you know? Sure. I'm sure, I'm sure there's There could be, uh, conspiracy theories about you and me, you know, maybe, maybe you're the one who created, <laughs> created the vaccine. <laughs> there are, there, there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there for sure. Uh, I, I think I found my new dissertation topic. Um, I, I, yeah. I think my, my goal is should just not be analysis is just, just be listing all the possible conspiracy theories and just compile that all into one long document forever. <laughs> you should. There's actually, so there's actually, uh, podcast episode of Throughline, the NPR podcast that looked at the history of conspiracy theories in the United States. So you can you can start there. It's actually very interesting. All right, I'm on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. I I was I just had to definitely ask you about that because uh, you probably seen some very, very strange strange things. I think the chip one is what I think that what's most interesting is how all these people have these theories. It's like Okay, only they always say like oh, only I know about this theory, or only a handful of people. Like no one else knows. The government doesn't know. I I have been the one to find the truth, and it's just like, okay, all right, okay, whatever you say. <laughs> so, yeah. just, and they just and I think on. they give people like you know an uncertainty. I think people latch on to the theories because it gives them a feeling of certainty. You know that they know what is what is happening. So kind of. Re- maybe reduces anxiety. I am also not an expert in conspiracy theories. So I'm just, <laughs> thank goodness. <laughs> 46 yeah. minutes in. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's great. And uh, I want to now shift a bit more into a uh, public health strategy, which is something it's an idea that's been kind of floated. And based on what we've been able to do and the things that we didn't do well, in this response, COVID response, what is your take about a national public health strategy led by led by the White House, as an example? I I think yeah, this is such a hard question because a national public health strategy is, if you're talking about a pandemic, is absolutely central to being able to control it, control it. Right, you have to have a cohesive, organized framework with a with centralized leadership um and the biggest challenge is that is that the united states has a federalist public health system which is really good in a lot of cases because it allows each state to tailor its public health to the needs of that state right so this is one of the huge benefits of a federalized public health system but but 
when you're talking about a pandemic, when you need every entity at every level to be taking the same action, and if you know one state or even one you know even lower level local public health, um, if it isn't done at that level, then it becomes a challenge to the overall strategy, right? So. Well, I think national a national strategy is is hugely important. I think in order to even if we created one, right? Because we do have technically have national strategies. Um, if we created a new one following COVID, in order to get it to work, we would still need everyone to be on the same page, right? So we would have to overcome these divisions and the polarization and the you know, anger, outright anger about fellow Americans and to be able to accomplish whatever strategy we put in place. Yeah, you're right. I think this is such a challenge because of the different levels of bureaucracy and of government. And I guess the that, that's something I definitely think should be should be discussed further, you know, kind of like how we have national strategies in regards to homeland security and terrorism and, and all that. Uh, although there are lower levels of that too, where there's kind of that coordination. And uh, before we get to the reflection phase, I, I call it reflection phase of our episode, Christy, and uh, you mentioned how there's there's certain people who have left the profession, the, the public health profession. What can we do to support those who want to get into the, the public health uh, profession so that we have the best, hopefully the best of the brightest uh, at the top and and helping make decisions and all the rest. I think that one of the main things I would like to see, because I think throughout this pandemic, in in, a, in some ways, public health kind of got turned into the enemy, right? Like that was imposing all of these, these things. But I, what I would like to see, and I think this would motivate, motivate people to not only come into the profession, but would help retain people because, you know, people right now are leaving because it's a lot of work. It's, you know, for most public health personnel, it's not a lot of money. Um, it's for for trying to do something that you you think is important. So um, for recruitment and retention purposes, I guess, I think one of the biggest things I would like to see is to remind, kind of like a reminder of how important um, the work of public health is. So if you think about a lot of the advancements that we have seen, um, especially in like overall well-being, health, life expectancy, those are all victories of public health, right? Like sanitation infrastructure was put in place to control diseases. Like these are these are public health victories. You know, we we often conflate it with medicine, with the new technologies we have in medicine, but a lot of the advancements, a lot of the things that have made people's lives better and made people healthier, actually advancements created by public health. So one of the examples I, I love is like back in the 1800, 1890s-ish, um, they used to put formaldehyde in like everything. And so children, um, they put it in milk in particular because it, they, it would like cover the sour taste and like stop things from getting more sour. And hundreds, hundreds of children would die you know, from drinking milk with formaldehyde in it. But this was also kind of before pasteurization. So there was also all sorts of bacteria 
as well, but just from formaldehyde alone. And, you know, the Safe Food and Drug Act, the reason that we now don't drink milk with formaldehyde in it was because of a public health office in Indiana and a scientist, chemist actually, that worked there and his efforts that spanned years to raise attention about the fact that, that you know, dairymen and, and companies were essentially poisoning people with formaldehyde. And so uh, there are all of these huge benefits that people in public health have done. And I think if we can remember that the job of public health is to protect people, is to improve your life, um, and, and is not the enemies, uh, then I think we would be able to get people interested in the profession and, and interested in staying in the, the profession. Oh, I really like that. And over the course of the last almost two years now, um, Christy, you've obviously seen a lot of things happen. You've you routinely did updates about COVID, which I think is very admirable because a lot of people wanted to find a reliable source about uh, all the things that are kind of going on. You know, what motivates you and and what you hope to see in the future in the public health profession? Again, I'm I might be an idealist, but I do believe that um, people are good, right? And so I think I, I always have this faith that people that we can't, you know, that we we can find a place where we can empathize with each other, and we can. And, and there are plenty of people who <laughs> who argue with me about this, but what motivates me is that I think that. This is important. I think that taking, uh, doing what you can to protect the public health is important. And I do think that, you know, we, we can't, um, as, as glum as some things look sometimes, we can't give up because, I mean, what, what's the alternative, right? Is that we don't have any public health and that we have all of the resurgence of disease. And this is just very specific for my profession, but. I guess I just I, I believe in 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 working towards a, a greater um, a greater good and, and and doing what I can to improve people's lives. Well, I really admire that. I, I really think that you what you do and what a lot of people do, even many times behind the scenes, is, is truly remarkable. And so I, I just uh, I hope that you will continue to to do that. You know, at uh, Sam Houston State or wherever. Uh, where it is that uh, that you continue with this this admiration for this love for what you do, and for the final part here, you know, as you probably know, you know, our show is based on Washington's farewell address and the things that he outlined as that final, the first final address before he leaves the presidency, and he outlines kind of a few pillars here, and the ones are patriotism, faith, national unity education, fiscal responsibility, civility, maybe amongst other things, but these are kind of the six big ones that I was able to identify. Um, I, I guess civility has already been touched upon, so maybe we set that aside. But out of the other five that I just uh, named, which one or which ones do you think are perhaps most relevant to our conversation today and really just in general, the, the advancement of, of science and of uh, public health policy? I mean, I would like, I would argue that they're all connected, that you can't actually single any of them out because the way, you know, the way I look at them and why I say they're connected is like, if you think about it, 
I mean, this is a, this is a huge country, right? Like this, it, it you know, living in say like a, a small rural community is your life experience and your personal experiences are going to be very different than someone living in in downtown um, Manhattan, for for example, right? So you, I think like in order to address all of these, um, d- the different, I guess, uh, principles is that is that what you would call them? Principles. Yes. yes. Yep. Is I actually see it as being one one solution, um, and this is just my personal opinion. So. I think it's the the fact to address all these principles. I think we need to recognize that, and we need to recognize that we all have different experiences, and we have different backgrounds, and we have different places that we come from. And not only recognizing that, but empathizing with that, and understanding that that we are all going to have these different experiences. And you know, again, we might not always agree with each other, but if we're going to achieve these things, like patriotism and national unity we have to recognize that we're all all part of one uh community even if the individual communities we live in are very different and maybe unrecognizable to each other you know so just having that empathy for every individual even if you disagree with them i think is is um and that compassion and understanding is uh is important to achieving those principles and so i I think that they're all interconnected in that way because you have to do that first before you can address any of those things individually very well said Uh, i i couldn't agree with you more and and i think that's the part of the goal is to keep them interconnected so that they're not just separate silos but that they are really part of one one major nation one nation that we all share and i i just um I, re- I really like what you said about empathy, about treating others with respect, because some of the things that we've highlighted, they're not easy to to deal with. Chrissy, thank you so much for, for coming on our program. You have really given a, an amazing just facts about history, about how our response has changed and how it hasn't changed. And I think just to have a more authoritative voice than I am, because like I said earlier, I am not an epidemiologist. Uh, I am not a public health person, but that's why I, I want to bring people like yourself to the program, because you obviously are a lot more familiar in this space. Um, and because otherwise I'm going to be talking about viruses. I don't even, I don't even know how small they are. I just know that they're really, really small. I can't see them. That's all. That's, that's yes. very much. And I got to wash my hands or if people, everyone has washed their hands. So it's, it's such big. Ba- wash your hands and cover your cough. Yes. Right. Those are the, those that's right. That's right. So, uh, Christy, thank you again so much for, for being on friends of fellow citizens. And I, I hope that we'll, we'll, uh, we'll continue this conversation because uh, no doubt that uh, this will be very, very vital, especially when we look at the history books and uh, and just reflect on the times that we are living right now. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Dr. Christine Blackburn. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to take a look at our two links down in the show notes below to subscribe to our email list and to check out those benefits at our Patreon page. Have a great rest of your day and rest of your week. And remember, a day in America always gets better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens.